0: Episode 42. 99.5% of doctors can't. What? Of the many how did this happen questions that swirl around the manufactured COVID crisis, one of the most troubling has been how did doctors fall for all of this? We've come to expect politicians to lie to us in order to serve the interests of their real constituents who plainly do not include you and me. And Yes Minister taught us that we should expect public servants to lie to us, either by commission or omission, because it ain't the public that they're serving.
1: Humphrey, we have to do something. With respect, Minister, we have to do nothing. What do you mean? The sale of our arms abroad is one of those areas of government that we do not examine too closely. Well, I have to, now that I know about it. But you could say you don't know. You're suggesting I should lie? Oh, not you, Mr. No. Well, who should lie? Sleeping dogs, Minister. (laughs) I'm going to raise this No, Minister, I beg you. A basic rule of government is never look into anything you don't have to. Never set up an inquiry unless you know in advance what its findings will be. Please, we're talking about good and evil. Our Church of England problem. No, Humphrey. Our problem. We are discussing right and wrong. You may be, Minister, but I'm not. It would be a serious misuse of government time. Selling arms to terrorists is wrong. Can't you see that, Humphrey? No, Minister. Either you sell arms or you don't. If you sell them, they will inevitably end up with people who have the cash to buy them. But not terrorists. Well, I suppose we could put some sort of government health warning on the rifle, but... (laughs) This gun can seriously damage your health. It's all very well to take this lightly, Humphrey. But we cannot close our eyes to something that is as morally wrong as this. Very well, Minister. If you insist on making me discuss moral issues, may I point out to you that something is either morally wrong or it isn't. It can't be slightly morally wrong. Don't quibble, Humphrey. Government isn't about morality. Really? What is it about then? Stability. Keeping things going. Preventing anarchy. Stopping society falling to bits. Still being here tomorrow. What for? (laughs) (laughs) What is the ultimate purpose of government if it isn't for doing good? Minister, government isn't about good and evil. It's only about order or chaos. And it's in order for Italian terrorists to get British bombs. And you don't care? It's not my job to care. That's what politicians are for. My job is to carry out government policy. Even if you think it's wrong? Well, almost all government policy is wrong, but <laughs> ...frightfully well carried out. Humphrey, have you ever known a civil servant to resign on a matter of principle? I should think not. What an appalling suggestion. <laughs> for the first time, I fully understand that you are purely committed to means not to ends. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Minister, and all of my colleagues, there is no difference between means and ends. If you believe that, Humphrey, you will go to hell. (laughs) Minister, I had no idea you had a theological bent. (laughs) You are a moral vacuum, Humphrey. If you say so, Minister. It's time for your lunch appointment, Minister. You're keeping very quiet, Bernard. What would you do about all this? I would keep very quiet, Minister. <laughs> so, Minister, may we drop this matter of the arm sales? No, we may not. I'm going to tell the Prime Minister, personally. Make an appointment for me, would you, Bernard? This is just the sort of thing that the Prime Minister wants to know about. I assure you, Minister, this is just the sort of thing the Prime Minister desperately wants not to know about. We shall see about that. <sighs> Indeed, we will. What's the matter, Bernard? Oh, nothing, really, Sir Humphrey. You look unhappy. Well, I was just wondering if the minister was right, actually. Very unlikely. What about? (laughs) About ends and means. I mean, will I end up as a moral vacuum, too? (laughs) Oh, I hope so, Bernard. (laughs) If you work hard enough. (laughs) Makes me feel rather downcast. If it's our job to carry out government policies... Shouldn't we believe in them?
0: (laughs) What an extraordinary idea. But doctors? Aren't we supposed to be able to trust them to make decisions in the best interests of their patients? And aren't they supposed to be highly educated men and women of science, deeply versed in the scientific method and well-equipped to dissect studies and spot their flaws? My previous article, Your Doctor Is Not Your Doctor, answered the first question. As I wrote in that article, The line between public health and the practice of medicine, a line that has become increasingly blurry over the past decades, as Dr Mukesh Haikawal tacitly acknowledged when endorsing the Declaration of Geneva as a reaffirmation of the role of doctors as independent professionals who owed a duty of care to their patients, has now been completely erased, and the manufactured COVID-19 crisis was the implement used to erase it. Now, when you go to see the person whom you think of as your doctor, there's an extra party in the consultation room, the state, which has inserted itself into the doctor-patient relationship without your consent. In fact, it's fair to say that the forced incorporation of health practitioners into the apparatus of public health has for all intents and purposes destroyed the doctor-patient relationship. And that again was from the article, Your Doctor is Not Your Doctor. An article recently published in JAMA Network Open provides at least a partial answer to the second question, that is, how did doctors fall for this? Over 99% of doctors can't do basic probability calculations required to assess the likelihood of a particular diagnosis or the likely success of a treatment when two or more independent events are involved. The study, titled Analysis of Physicians' Probability Estimates of a Medical Outcome Based on a Sequence of Events, surveyed 215 specialists in the fields of either obstetrics and gynaecology or pulmonology and asked them to estimate the probability of success of each of two components of a diagnostic or prognostic sequence, as well as the overall probability of success of the two-step sequence. And just a note, diagnosis is the process of figuring out what condition a patient has based on their symptoms, or subjective experiences, and signs, or objective data obtained through examination and testing. Prognosis is the forecast of the probable cause or outcome of a disease, or a prediction of the probability of success of a treatment. The Conjunction Fallacy The authors were interested in finding out whether the conjunction fallacy that is, the misestimation of the overall probability of success when two or more independent events are involved is a likely source of the errors that doctors make in both diagnosis and prognosis. As they explain, quote, The probability of a conjunction of two independent events is the product of the probabilities of the two components, and therefore cannot exceed the probability of either component. A violation of this basic law of probability is called the conjunction fallacy. End of quote. To illustrate with an example that is highly relevant to me right now, if I wanted to calculate the probability that I will be sitting down to a big bowl of lovely ripe mulberries from my mulberry tree tomorrow, I would need to estimate A, the probability that enough of the currently almost ripe mulberries will be fully ripe by tomorrow to warrant a mulberry picking excursion, and B, the probability that the birds don't get them first, and then multiply the two figures by each other. And I'm going to urge you to take a look at the photo of rainbow lorikeets in a mulberry tree, which is in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Now, as anyone with even the most tenuous grasp of mathematics will quickly realise, the overall probability of me getting to enjoy my mulberries tomorrow cannot exceed the probability of either of the independent factors. For example, assuming a 60%, that is a 0.6, probability of rapid action ripening, even if I deploy enough bird netting, mylar ribbons, and propane-powered cannons, and yes, they're a thing, to deter all the most badass birds, thus preserving 90% or 0.9 of the berries, there still cannot be a greater than 60% probability of me feasting on ripe mulberries tomorrow. In fact, the overall probability of me getting a bowl full of ripe mulberries tomorrow is 0.9, that is the fraction of mulberries preserved, by 0.6, the probability that they will have ripened by tomorrow, which equals 0.54, or 54%. Okay, back to the study. The obstetrician gynaecologists were given the scenario of a brow presentation discovered during labour, that is, the baby's neck is somewhat arched so that the widest part of the head is trying to fit through the birth canal, which is impossible in the circumstances described in the scenario, and asked to estimate the probability that the patient will convert to occiput posterior, a birth position in which the baby's head is facing forward rather than backwards, rendering vaginal delivery possible but risky, and go on to deliver vaginally. In order to calculate the probability of a vaginal delivery, the doctors needed to estimate the probability of the two conjuncts, a, that the brow presentation would convert to occiput posterior, and b, that the delivery of the now occiput posterior presenting baby would be vaginal, and multiply them by each other. The pulmonologists were presented with a scenario in which a nodule was incidentally discovered in the lung of a female long-term smoker, and asked to estimate the overall combined probability that the nodule is cancerous, and that the cancerous condition would be detected via a properly conducted needle biopsy. Once again, to derive the correct answer, the lung specialists needed to multiply the probability of the two conjuncts, A, that the patient had lung cancer, and B, that the cancer would be detected by needle biopsy. Remember, by definition, the probability of the combined event cannot be greater than the probability of either of the two component events. So how did they do? Quote, a total of 168 physicians, or 78.1%, estimated the probability of the two-step sequence to be greater than the probability of at least one of the two component events. End of quote. Uh Uh-oh! How bad were their math skills? Compared with the product of their two estimated components, that is component A multiplied by component B, the pulmonologist's estimates of the combined probability of a biopsy-revealing cancer in the putative patient were over by 19.8%, while the Obgynese overestimated the combined probability of a vaginal delivery after conversion of a brow presentation to an occipital posterior presentation by 12.8%. Neither the respondents' sex nor the time since obtaining a medical degree were correlated with the magnitude of overestimation. Whether green or experienced, male or female, these highly qualified specialists were similarly likely to commit a basic mathematical error. When the researchers gave the Obgyines a chance to identify and correct their own calculation errors by specifically requiring them to consider the conjunction's components before estimating the overall probability, they did even worse overestimating the combined probability by 18%. Quote, because the two component probabilities were clearly relevant to estimating the overall probability, we concluded that the physicians did not know, or did not recognise when to use, the multiplication rule for probability. Because our third study, that is the ob do-over, asked for the estimates of the components first, and because these estimates were often provided in round numbers, for example 30% or 40%, Calculating the conjunctive estimate should have been relatively easy if physicians were aware of the multiplication rule, end of quote. Almost 80% of the highly trained respondents gave answers which were, in the restrained language of scientific studies, quote, mathematically incoherent, that is, formally illogical, and mathematically incorrect, end of quote. In fact, out of the 215 respondents, quote, only one physician in these three sub-studies correctly estimated the conjunction probability to be exactly equal to the product of the component's estimates. End of quote. Or, to put it another way, 99.53% of doctors got it wrong. Why does it matter? Especially if you're a little mathematically challenged yourself, you might be wondering at this point, does it really matter if most doctors are enumerate? How much does it affect their clinical judgment and the advice they give to patients? A lot, as it happens. As the authors of the study point out, quote, the impetus for this research project was a real case involving a medical tragedy. In that case, patient counselling related to probabilities was misguided in a way consistent with the conjunction fallacy, resulting in the loss of a child due to injuries sustained during prolonged labour, end of quote. In other words, a baby died because the mother was not given sufficient information on the chances of her baby surviving if she continued to attempt vaginal delivery. She declined a caesarean section, which, in this case, would probably have saved the baby's life. Basic math skills really do matter. Quote, overestimation has the potential to reduce the quality of medical care in any of the myriad scenarios in which decisions depend on probability estimates, end of quote. The authors reference other studies providing evidence that, as they delicately put it, quote, many physicians may not be facile in the calculation of probability or even basic numeracy, end of quote. For example, when provided with all the information that they required to calculate the probability that a woman had breast cancer based on a positive result on mammography screening, quote, 95% of physicians responded with a probability that was 10 times higher than the correct answer, end of quote. Take a moment to imagine the consequences of this miscalculation to the woman sitting in the doctor's office and you won't be surprised that a false positive on mammography screening, that is, being recalled for further investigation after something abnormal shows up on your screening mammogram, but then finding that you're cancer-free, is associated with elevated anxiety up to 18 months after getting the all clear. Now, think about how these findings relate to the behaviour of doctors since the outbreak of COVI-C. Many of my clients and subscribers have tried to discuss the serious limitations of PCR tests, the uselessness of face masks, and the unfavourable risk-to-benefit ratio of COVID-19 injections with their doctors, often taking scientific papers to their appointments in hopes of eliciting a rational discussion. Needless to say, this has not gone well. The most common response is angry dismissal, closely followed by stony-faced repetition of the COVID catechism. Not one of my contacts has found a doctor willing to engage in discussion of research. Whilst the serious conflicts of interest that I discussed in that previous article, Your Doctor is Not Your Doctor, provide a large part of the explanation for this phenomenon, the finding that most doctors are disturbingly innumerate also factors in. If your sense of legitimacy and authority rests on being smarter than the average bear, it's intimidating to be confronted by a patient who seems to have a better grasp of basic mathematical concepts than you do. What should we do with this information? The authors of the study echo other researchers' calls to include quote, greater emphasis on numeracy as well as statistical and probabilistic reasoning in medical education, end of quote. Sounds like a good plan, but even if it were implemented, it's not going to help the patients who are currently receiving inferior care because their doctors are enumerate. For the foreseeable future, if you or someone you're responsible for is in need of medical care, it's going to be up to you to develop some basic mathematical competency so that you can compensate for your doctor's deficits when it comes to selecting or rejecting tests and treatments. You could, for example, take an introductory class on probability and statistics from Khan Academy, watch Dr. H. Gilbert Welch's excellent videos on biostatistics, Overdiagnosis, sensitivity and specificity, and a host of other important topics. You could sign up to Dr. James Lyons Wireless course on how to read and interpret a scientific study, or any of the other excellent courses at IPAC-EDU. Or, here comes the shameless plug, you could join my EmpowerEd membership program and learn how to distinguish reliable information from junk science and industry propaganda. Even if you only learn how to correctly calculate a conjunction probability, you'll be doing better than 99.5% of doctors. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials, and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.